The living word of God in Judges 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lebedoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramon and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her <clears throat> and had their disputes decided. She sent for Brock, son of Abinam from Kadesh of Napali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men in Napali and Zubalon, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jebin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kassan River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zubalon and Nepali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Rob Gervin. I am the youth director here at ECC. Uh, I do not normally dress like this, as many of you have pointed out. Um, but I went and got coffee this morning and someone called me sir. So from now on, this is the way it's going to happen. Um, so I'm feeling really confident today. Um, this morning we continue our look through the lives of Old Testament characters in order to gain, in order to glean hope, guidance, and encouragement from their lives of faith. Today, we're going to be looking at Judges 4, at the story of Deborah and Barak. Uh, this is one of the oddest texts in the Bible. Um, it is just, I was, I was asking Bob, Bob, what character should I do? And he said, why not Deborah? And I said, oh, why not? And, uh, and people have been like, why did you pick Deborah? Um, I don't know. Um, but as I've been pouring over it the last two weeks, it just, things are just flying off the text every time I open it up. And so if I can make a plea to you, go back through this and uh, through chapter 4 and open it up this week. Because even as I've been talking to some of you, there have been things you pointed out that I'm not going to point out today. There's just a lot of richness in this text. Um, its story is filled with irony and contains unusual characters and curious meanings. I will start off by telling the story, and then we'll dive into some stuff. But before I do, let's go back to 1996. I'm a 10-year-old boy. Um, the 90s were a beautiful time. They were a time of just, I feel like, just peace and prosperity, and everything was great, um, at least for me being a third grader. And uh, it was, but it had to have been, something had to have been right with the world, because imagine those of you who have that a child that age, or who have a grandchild that age, um, imagine you decide to send your third grader off to France to be with somebody who you've never met before. Can you imagine that? Think about 10-year-old boy shipping them off to France. Well, my parents did that. 
Because all the other parents in our school were doing that. We did this French back-to-back program. So I am a 10-year-old boy. And we end up, this boy comes and stays with me for three weeks. And then we end up going, I end up going to France with a group and staying with his family, who my family has never met before, who could be crazy people. And I get off the plane and I see my French mother and I immediately cry. And I cry and I cry for three days. It's like somebody build an ark, this guy. It is unleashing the floods. And I cried so much I made myself sick. So I'm crying, getting sick, crying, getting sick. So I spent most of my time in the restroom. And my, my poor French family had no idea what to do. Because number one, they don't speak English. I don't speak French. And I'm freaking out. Like, and um, so they, so there's one day that I am, uh, so on the third day, they've tried to make me this meal. They've asked me all my favorite foods and literally have just laid out the smorgasbord. But of course, I'm not in the mood for eating because I am in a strange place and my family obviously doesn't love me anymore. So I am really having a hard time with these people. And um, all of a sudden, I'm in my usual place for the last three days, and the door busts open. And the biggest man I have ever seen is standing in the doorway, and I have no idea who he is. And he he speaks English. He actually has an English accent. It was kind of cool, I bet. But I was petrified. And he said, you. (laughs) And I was like, who are you? (laughs) And he says, I'm, I'm their neighbor, and they've been telling me that they've been trying to provide you this week, and you've been crying the whole time. Well, number one, they've, they're trying to love you, and you are being very disrespectful. And number two, you're going to miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime if you don't get up. Get up. Uh. <laughs> so I got up. There are sometimes we need a wake-up call. There are sometimes we get caught up in fear or in sin or ourselves or something else, and we need to be brought back and awakened to reality. In Judges 4, we find that situation. Now, just so we're clear, judges judges in this day are um, not like our judges now. In times of peace, they had the authority to settle disputes, as we saw Deborah doing in the passage. And in times of war, they acted as a rallying point to gather tribes and organize resistance. But in chapter 4, we begin, and Israel has done it again. Ehud has died. He was the judge before Deborah. And as soon as he dies, they go back to their ways. They start doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, chapter 4 is basically a story, a narrative, talking to us about the situation. And chapter 5 is more of a, uh, is poetry, and it gives us a little more emotional background. So I'm going to be in chapter 4, but using chapter 5 to kind of give us a little more background, okay? Um, but in chapter, so in chapter 5, it explains to us that they've gone after new gods. They've begun to praise new gods. And God then sells them. The text says he hands them over to the Canaanites, um, specifically uh, Jabin. Jabin is a uh, commander, and um, 
he, but he won't be the main antagonist in the story. Actually, his, um, his commander, um, Sisera, will be the, will be the main antagonist. They've oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Sisera, it says, has 900 chariots and a big army. Chariots, have, I've always thought chariots were the thing that kind of busted through um, army lines and that, and that. But as I was studying on chariots, they're really meant to pursue people who flee. So they've just kind of kept them in this holding pattern. There's no way out. And so, Andy, I, I'm guessing he has a big army, although they don't really talk about his army. So finally, in, four, in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, they cry to the Lord for help. Intro Deborah. Deborah's name, we learn a few things about Deborah. First of all, her name means honeybee. It's a nice name. And we'll, we'll go back to her name. Um, I heard a lot of people talk about, well, that may be because she was really sweet, but also could sting. Um, that's lame, dude. Um, but then, um, she's also a prophetess who is married to a Lapidoth. And, uh, she's judging Israel. Now, this is a patriarchal society. We don't see a lot of women leading. But in this case, she is the judge of Israel. And she is sitting under this palm of Deborah. She's in a place that everyone goes up to. And it's her place. Um, she then summons Barak. This guy who uh, looks like he's also kind of in that same sort of role. He's a judge of some sort. He's, he's at least the commander of the army. So she summons him. He's in Kadesh in Neftali. Kadesh means sanctuary. One commentator I was looking at talked about how Kadesh means, um, yeah, Kadesh means sanctuary. I already said that. Um, and I was thinking about this being, man, what is he doing? He's 40 miles away from where he's supposed to be. He's in this place called sanctuary. What's he doing? Is he, is he hiding? One person pointed out that this was kind of a refuge for people. What's he doing there? They've been oppressed for 20 years. Is he just kind of chilling out? Like, is he sitting around having a nice drink with friends? Like, what is he doing in the midst of this time? Deborah calls him in. And she says... The Lord, your God, commands you, go and take 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebelim and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. She says, another translation of this is going to say, has God not commanded you? Has he not commanded you to go? So it almost kind of sounds like a rebuke. Hey, he already said go. What are you doing? And Barak's response is, if you go with me, I will go. If you go, I will go. Now he's, uh, in a lot of commentaries, he is berated for this action. This action of, of faithlessness. God, she just told you that God said he's going to hand everything over to you. That you are going to be victorious in this victory. What are you doing? And so Deborah's response 
is very well. I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours for the Lord. For the Lord will hand over Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah goes with him and they summon 10,000 men. And uh, Deborah, Deborah's right next to him. Now the battle unfolds. And before it does, there's this weird sort of aside where this guy um, named Herber the Kenite shows up. And Herber just walks on the scene and he ends up pitching his tent. Herber is um, a descendant of the brother-in-law of Moses. But this is kind of just one of those random points of the text. Herber shows up, pitches his tent, and sits and just goes about life. And then it leaves Herber. And so you're like, what? Who is Herber? Uh, but we'll get to him in a minute. Um, like I said, this is just a fun, ridiculous story. And I just am really excited about it. So, um, so they told Sisera that Barak um, was coming. And Sisera grabs, gathers up his 900 chariots and all the men um, with him. And Deborah says, Go! The Lord is going to hand Sisera over to you. This is your moment. So the Israelites, 10,000 troops come charging in. And we, we find out that the army of uh, Sisera is uh, defeated. There, in chapter 5, we learn a little bit that there was this, this mysterious storm that kicked up where God routed the army. So that you had the, the Israelites, but also it was mainly God. And he picked up a storm and he routed the army. So Sisera is running. And he, is, he's, and he ends up coming to that tent. And Herber's wife, Jael, she says, Hey, come in here. Come in here. I'll keep you safe. So he goes in there. And she gives him some warm curdled milk. Probably like yogurt. And he eats it, and he's exhausted from battle. He just lost, and his stomach is filled with warm curdled milk. And he falls asleep, as you would too. And Jael, this, this nomadic woman, this woman who puts up tents everywhere she goes, because that was the job of the woman, she, while he is sleeping, and supposedly he, he'd asked her to guard the tent if anybody was going to come in, but he didn't talk about her. So she came over and takes a tent stake, drives it through his temple, and he's dead. Sisera, or not Sisera, um, Barak, who is really excited about this whole thing of getting, getting the battle thrown into his hands, is running past the tent, just like looking for this guy. And she goes, hey, the one you're looking for is in the tent. Okay, awesome. And that's the way, and now, and now um, they ended up beating the Canaanites back. And that's the way the story ends. It's ridiculous. And it's wonderful. Um, so I'm sitting there this week thinking, God, what are you trying to teach from this story? Don't drink curdled milk. Um, but, in all seriousness, what I want to do now is, look, is to closely examine a few of the characters. Because every time I studied this, something new jumped out at me. And so it was hard to stay concise. I feel like every time I opened the Bible, my sermon changed. And that's really annoying. Um, 
so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at three main people in the Bible. Um, first, we have to ask the question of Barak. Did he fail? Was that a failing, what he did? I think it's easy to say yes, but I don't want to. Because what did he do? He said, if you go with me, Deborah, I'll go. Deborah is a prophetess. She's almost like an oracle to these people. She is the voice of God on behalf of God. And he says, I'm not going in without you. I want the presence of God with me when I do this. Even though she says, the battle is not going to be won by you then. Victory will not be with your name on it. And he doesn't, he doesn't fight. That, that stood out to me so much. He doesn't fight that. He doesn't say, oh, well, I mean, okay then, I'll, I'll do it. Like, it's fine. Don't hand it over to a woman. I'll, I'll do it. It's fine. Um, instead, he goes along with it. And is that wrong? The uh, Israelites, when they were in the desert, in, in the book of Exodus, they had the cloud and the pillar and they only moved when it did. And then we have the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus as well. where That was the presence of God. And then there's Jacob and the angel. They're, they're wrestling. And Jacob says, I will, not go, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is not a new thing for people to beg for the presence of God as they go into it. I don't think he's wrong for that. He followed the word of God spoken through another. He was willing to follow God and disregard who got credit for it. He wanted the presence of God in all he did. And guess what? In the, in the hall of faith, in Hebrews 11, his name's there. And anytime this story's referenced... He's the one who gets named. That stuck out to me. I had to start asking questions about that. I would say, I'm going to look at the story and say, I, I really do believe he just wanted the presence of God. And for that, has been commended in the Bible at least twice that I know of. Now we get to Deborah. Deborah's name means honeybee. And I was thinking about honeybees. Yes, they're sweet and they sting. Um, but I have a student right now, um, in my youth group who is, he's one of those guys who just is always doing projects and he's always just got some ridiculous thing he's doing. And he just decided he wanted to, um, get honeybees and, and have, have a little hive. And he's just, he's one, he speaks so fast. He's so excited about honeybees. He's like, Rob, guess what? Honeybees are like this great organism. They work together and they, you know, they build this thing. And if, if one gets sick, then like it'll remove itself for the good of the, the hive and, and all of this. I see that in Deborah. Deborah protecting her people. Deborah not needing, Deborah's never mentioned outside of these two chapters. And most people probably have not read this story. But it is because of Deborah and because of her urging of Barak that that victory was won. She 
went into battle even though she was probably not, she wasn't Xena warrior princess. But she went in to battle, to stand as the presence of God. This is also the only story in Judges where two people are taking part in the rescue of Israel. She wasn't serving God for herself. She was serving God's people on behalf of God. And my last thing that sticks out to me is that character, God, who's not really mentioned a whole lot, who is obviously moving the pieces together. It's obvious. It just kind of falls into place. And what stands out to me about God is that number one, God will be victorious. But God's victories are won through the weakness of man. He used so much. I mean, this story has so much, it's drenched in weakness. First of all, we have a woman leader. That would not have been seen as a strength. And yet it was their most powerful tool they had. She was such a strong leader. And she led and walked with Barak. And he listened to her. You have a a woman who actually, actually ends up ending the battle. It's a powerful thing. And then you have Barak, the commander, who submits himself to another. He considers himself weak before Deborah in order to get the presence of God. God also came to his people in their weakness when they were crying out to him. God uses our weakness. And we are so quick to hide our weakness. And we're so quick to find ways to get away from our weakness. My first response to this past week, I I was just a little overwhelmed and just kind of bogged down by the fact that I hadn't been keeping a very good schedule. I hadn't been very organized recently. And my first response was to start reading a bunch of books on it, start Googling it, start getting into all these ways of trying to better myself. Instead of just admitting, first and foremost, I was, just, I was just weak in that area. I was struggling this week. And I just needed to admit that. And as soon as I was able to admit that, I was able to experience grace. I was able to experience grace from those people that I had messed up with. I had been able to experience grace from God as He was able to be my strength. God uses our weakness. When I am weak, he shows himself to be strong. We also have in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 12. Paul writes, he had this thorn in his side and he's asking God to take it away. And he goes, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness 
so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so what does it look like to acknowledge that weakness? I think it's exactly what Barak did. It's to humble ourselves before God and admit our need. It's to take God into our battles. Because what I'm seeing in that story is, one guy had 900 chariots and one guy had God. This guy won. And that is how we need to live our life. I loved that Gretchen pointed out that that was, uh, that Psalm 20 was a psalm we should be reading over ourselves. Because every day is a battle. Every day is a battle. I am being ripped in one direction or the other. I have to take God with me into those battles. And guess what? He's already there. I have to acknowledge Him with me. His promise is that He goes with us. But so many times I'm trying to figure out how many troops I've got and how many, what my resources are, instead of knowing that the God of the universe, whose all the resources are in his, are in his hands, is with me. So this week, let's be willing to listen to the voice of God through another. Do you have people around you who can give you godly advice? Are you open with them about where you're at? And are you willing to listen to those people? Are we willing to listen and deal with the truth? Are we willing to get honest with ourselves, God, and even another? Are we willing to serve and not get credit for it, as Deborah did and Barack tried to do but ended up getting credit anyways? Let's stop hiding from weakness. I think one of the most powerful things we can do is to show who we really are. To be weak before God. Because in our weakness, as soon as we become less, God shows himself to be more. And people see God in that. It it hit me a few years ago that The students I was working with didn't need me to have it all together. But it really helped them when they admitted I didn't. And so a lot of times we have to show that. Let's stop covering up our shortcomings and instead be willing to deal with them and present them before God. Let's try lifting up those weaknesses to God in prayer. And admit it to, a, to, to each other. And let's give grace to those who are amongst us. Maybe you will have to be the voice of God on behalf of God to someone. We need to take care of each other. As Deborah did, we need to be looking out for this community of faith. Because there will be days when you will need to address me and help me and wake, give me a wake-up call. And there will be days when hopefully I'll be able to reciprocate. We need a wake-up call.
So this week, let's take God into our battles. I love the challenge of even to start off this week with Psalm 20. Open it up. Get into it. Start off with Judges as well. Um, Judges 4 is one of those stories that there's so much that I didn't even cover in it. And God will be our strength in the midst of our weakness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise. God, the promise that when we are weak, you are strong. God, that our weakness has the chance to put you on display, God. Some men do trust in chariots. Let us be those who do not. Let us be those who trust in the Lord, who cry out to you in our distress, God, who walk with you daily. God, we thank you for a community, and we do ask that we would, like Deborah, care for and fight for the community of believers, God. God, we ask that if there are those of us who are hiding out, God, who are in need of a wake-up call, God, we pray that you would bring that to us. Bring us closer to you and deeper into your service, God, and to your presence. And we'll thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.